How late is too late? If you've arranged to meet somebody for coffee in Starbucks at 2 o'clock, at what point do you give up? At what point do you go from being fashionably late to ignorantly late? How long would you wait? 10 minutes? 20 minutes? Half an hour? At what point do you go, I've had enough of waiting, I'm just not taking this anymore? Somebody once told me that the way to make an impression at a party was to arrive late, dominate the conversation, and leave early. Um, which I'm not sure. Their, their theory was this, you arrive late, and so everybody's there when you walk in, you dominate the conversation, and then you leave early, and everybody's going, where's that person who was talking to everyone? That was their theory, I'm not so sure about that, uh, but everybody has a different concept of time, some people are very strict about time, so if you're like even two minutes late, they'll be like, it's fine, but inside they're seething for the next ten minutes or so, and other people are much more chilled and much more relaxed. And it can be a cultural thing, it can be a family thing. When we moved to Dublin back in 2011, we arrived, and we arrived with Cooney time, and we entered into Dublin time. Um, so our, our service uh, was due to start at 11 o'clock. And uh, 11 o'clock came and went, and there was about eight people in the room. And about 25 past, you know, they sort of start strolling in, up at the crack of noon, um, Start strolling in casually as can be, and I'm looking at my watch, and I'm thinking, and by about 11.34, we decided to get started. And I, I asked them, and they, they said, this has been going on for, for years, actually, that, you know, you know, it's Dublin time, Craig. You need to get used to Dublin time. I said, no, you need to get used to Cooney time. And, uh, and within a few weeks, we'd started at 11 o'clock. There might have been five people there, and people trickled in, and they missed the worship for the first few weeks. And then eventually, we, uh, we got back to Cooney time again. And I, uh, and, uh, but I, I just I don't like being late. And I felt it was rude when you have visitors coming along. I remember one week when visitors arrived at 10 to 11, thinking the service would start at 11. At 20 past 11, they got up and left. And I just said, guys, we're not doing this anymore. I, I, like, I like to honor people's time. I like to respect people's time. I don't like being late. But like I say, everybody has a different concept of time. Women have a different concept of time. I'll be ready in five minutes. Huh? Five minutes, Sharon? Huh? <laughs> Herbie, go watch a movie. You'll need to shave by the time that woman's ready. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, you know, some people have said a, a woman's, I'll be ready in five minutes. It's the same as a man's, I'll be home in five minutes when he's out at the football or out with his friends or whatever. But we all have a different concept of time. In this uh, passage we're looking at, we see Jesus is late, and he's not just fashionably late, he's not even a little bit late, he's incredibly late. In fact, he's too late. His friend Lazarus, he had a family in a little, little village called Bethany, just outside Jerusalem. The oldest one was called Martha, the scholars think. Her sister was Mary, and then there was the, the little brother Lazarus. And somebody, I, I, was, you know, I was reading it this week, and I found it strange that every time Mary, Martha, and Lazarus appear... Mary and Martha speak. We have never a word from Lazarus in the whole Bible. Just saying. Um, but they, they send word to Jesus and say, the one you love is sick. And their expectation is that Jesus will drop everything and go to be with them. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus hangs around for two days. And by the time he gets there, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. And, uh, and that's, like I said, that's not fashionably late, but it, it's strange because it says he loved him, so he waited. You know, were there more pressing matters 
Was there something more urgent he had to do? Was he busy? No. He deliberately and purposely waited because there was something else more important than him being there at that moment. It was a purposeful, deliberate postponement. And there's just three, two, two things that we, we, we touched on last week, but I, I just want to mention them again. The first one is this, and I, some of you need to hear this. God's delays are not his denials. God's delays are not his denials. Denials of what? Well, first of all, God's delays are not a denial of his love. God's delays are not a denial of his love. It says, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so he waited. In other words, he loved them enough to wait. And some of us feel like if God doesn't operate in our schedule, if God doesn't operate in our timeline, if he doesn't show up exactly when we want him to show up, then he mustn't love me, he mustn't care about me. But actually, sometimes God shows his love by not doing what we want when we want you know, we can be like stubborn kids, you know, we've got a little boy and everything is now with him, you know. He has no concept of waiting, no concept of, you know, delay and gratification. Everything is now. And sometimes we can be like that with God. We expect him to be like a slot machine God. We put the 10p prayer in and everything comes out. And God's delays are not his denials of his love. Sometimes God waits because he loves us. God waits because he loves us. Don't equate God's love to him always turning up on time. Don't confuse God's love with conformity to your agenda. And the second thing is this. God's delays are not a denial of his activity in your life. You see, when we don't see God work, we assume he's not working. When we don't see the activity of God in us or around us, we assume he's left us, he doesn't care, he's abandoned us, and yet... For every moment of those four days, I believe Jesus was thinking about Lazarus. He was working. He was purposeful. God is incredibly intimate and intentional in how he works in your life. Incredibly intimate and intentional. He's purposeful in how he works in your life. He knows the hairs on your head. For some of you, that is way easier than others. But... But he, imagine a God who knows every hair on your head. How would he not be also involved in that thing that you think he's late for? That thing you're praying for. God is incredibly purposeful and intentional. He was strategically late. He was purposefully late. And once we grasp this, we, we can understand that a waiting season doesn't have to be a wasted season. Sometimes we write off, like, like we kind of want to write off 2020. But one of the things I was asking in our newsletter this week for those 17 of you who read it, um, what has God done in your life this year? Has it just been a write-off? Or actually, can you look at, in the midst of all of the chaos and confusion and disorder and disruption, can you look and go, actually, I see what God did. It's not how I would have wanted it. It's not how I planned. But in this waiting season, God hasn't wasted it because God wastes nothing in our lives. God wastes nothing in our lives. God wastes nothing. We need to understand that. God wastes nothing. He's at work in the background. And very often, who we become in the waiting is more important than what we're waiting for. 
Who you and I become in that waiting time is more important than actually what we're waiting for. You see, we're destination-focused. God cares more about the journey. We're all about getting there. God cares about who we are and what he does in our lives while we're getting there. So Jesus eventually gets to Bethany. Well, the outskirts of Bethany. (laughs) Every other time he gets into the house, this time Martha goes out to reach him before he gets to the house. It's quite funny. And you can imagine how awkward that is. You know, like, has anyone ever sent you a text message with something really important and you're just like, I can't be bothered replying. And then you meet them two days later and they're like, did you not get my text message? Is your, is your phone not working? No, I did get it. I just left you on red. Um, you know, like, it's really, or, 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 or when, like, when, from the other side of the equation, when you're saving at somebody, when somebody's done something, but you're, you meet them and you're kind of trying to be nice to them, but you're really struggling because inside you've got bad thoughts about them. I, I think that's kind of what's going on in Martha. She goes out to meet Jesus, and, and, and the first thing she says is, uh, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And her sister then says exactly the same. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. They're expressing disappointment. And faith and disappointment will sometimes go hand in hand. In fact, you cannot have faith without being disappointed sometimes. Sometimes God will not do what you want him to do or when you want to do it. And we need to learn to deal with our disappointments. I said that last week. We need to actually learn to deal and process our disappointments. And they come to Jesus and they say, if only you'd been here. If you'd been here sooner. If you'd left a few days earlier. If you'd actually prioritized us the way you prioritize everybody else who you don't seem to care about as much as us. Jesus, if you'd been here, but it's too late now. We're told it's the fourth day. And in Jewish tradition, when a person died, the the spirit hovered over the body for three days. And then it went to the afterlife, it went to the spirit world, it went to the netherland. Uh, but, 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 but this is the fourth day. So what they're saying is Lazarus isn't just dead, he's dead, dead. He's really dead. It's too late. There's no hope now. The situation is done. And you know, we all have a Lazarus. We all have something that didn't work out the way we hoped. The hope, way we planned, the way we dreamt, the way we anticipated, the way we expected. We all have an area of our lives where if we're really honest, we, if we're really honest, we think, God, you didn't come through there. I had, I, I had thought this would happen by this stage. I had thought you would do this. I had thought you would heal this person. I had thought I would get this job. I had thought, I'd thought this, and you didn't do it. And God, if only you'd done this, but, but it's too late now. It's too late now. It's never going to happen. And we base assumptions, or we make assumptions based on what God hasn't done. We make assumptions based on our experience and what we see. It's too late and it's hopeless. But if you remember last week, Jesus said, this will not end in death. This sickness will not end in death. And then 10 verses later in verse 14, he says, Lazarus is dead. Which one is it? Both were true. Jesus says, this will not end in death. Lazarus is dead. They were both true. Because with Jesus, his word is the final word. And so even if something or someone looks like they're dead, when Jesus says this will not end in death, it's not over till he says it is over. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, God is the God of human history. 
He's the God of everything that has gone before. He's the God who has no beginning. And he's the God of the future. He's the God of everything that's going to happen. But right now, he's the I am. He is the I am. And in this moment, he is I am to your need. I am your provider. I am your healer. I am your deliverer. I am your restorer. I am the one who will set you free. And in a moment of death, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Earlier, he had said, if you're thirsty, I am the water of life. If you're hungry, I am the bread of life. He said, if, uh, if you're in darkness, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And when the resurrection and the life walk into the room, darkness and death have to flee. Because his power always is greater than death and darkness. It doesn't matter if it's a hospital room or a dark hole tomb. Death must go. It doesn't matter if they've just stopped breathing four seconds ago or four days ago. When the resurrection and the life walks in, death and decay have to exit. It doesn't matter how bad it seems or how final things appear. It's not over until he says it's over because our God always has the final word. And we need to know that in these days. These days of darkness and despair We need to know that we have a God on the throne in heaven and his word is final. And nothing will happen until he says it happens. And nothing will finish until he says it's finished. And he has everything working purposely. I know we don't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it right now. But he has a sovereign plan for our world and for your life. And he is moving everything towards it. And it's not over. And I've read the end of this book, folks. I've read the end of this book. And what's gory now ends in glory. What's gory in your life, what's gory in our world now ends in glory. Because we have a God who has a son seated at his right hand. And that son is going to appear in the clouds. And every eye will see him. And every knee will bow. And all things will be made new in heaven and on earth. And one day we will rule and reign with him forever. That's what this book teaches. I have read the end and it's not over until our God says it's over. He always has the last word. So don't put a comma or don't put a full stop where God puts a comma. Yeah. Verses 30 to 40. Jesus once more deeply moved. So he has, I don't have time, you know where Jesus weeps and He's deeply moved. It's, 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 there's a, an anguish. There's a frustration. The, the literal Greek word for, it says this twice. It's almost like he, he snorts like a horse. He's, 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 he's so angry at death. He's so angry at what sin has done in our world. And so he comes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone there across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So Jesus eventually reaches the tomb. He says, Take away the stone. Martha, the responsible one, says, Jesus, you don't really want to do that. It's been four days. It's stinking. Literally, the King James Version says, It stinketh. The Greek word is phooey. No, uh, it's... uh, Some of you could say that's, that's like the verse to put on your teenage son's room, you know. By this time it stinketh every morning. Uh, but, 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 but 
She says it stinketh. Don't roll away. Because don't forget, this is, this is the Middle East. This is a warm climate. Four days, this body has started to decompose. She says, don't roll. Jesus says, I don't, I don't care about your mess. Roll away the stone. I move towards the mess. I'm the God who moves towards the mess. Other people might shy away from the mess and the stink. I am the God who moves towards the stench, the stench behind the stone. So will you move away the stone in your life and let me get to the stench? Will you move away the stone that you're hiding your mess behind? Because I am not put off by your mess. And Jesus wants to say that to some of you this morning. He is not repelled by the parts of you that you're repelled by or that other other people. He steps towards the stink. He moves towards the mess. He says, roll away the stone and let me into that place that you've been hiding, that place you've been covering up, that place that even those who know you best don't see because you're so embarrassed by it or because it has such a hold on your life or because you're so addicted to it or because it's so broken or because it's too painful. Jesus says, roll away the stone and let me walk in there. It's not too dark for me. It's not too messy for me. It's not too stinking for me. And it's never too far gone for me because I am the resurrection and the life and roll away the stone and let me into that tomb in your heart where there's death where there's decay where there's lust where there's addiction where there's struggle where there's pain where there's disappointment where there's abuse where there's sadness let me in there because I am the resurrection and I am the life he moves towards the mess he steps into the stink let me see the places you keep hidden let me see the disappointment the grief the heartache Roll away the stone. Take me to your place of greatest failure. Roll away the stone. Take me to that thing you deeply regret that you did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and nobody knows about it. Roll away the stone. I don't want to hurt you. I want to heal you, but I can't heal what you keep hiding. So will you roll away the stone and I will come in because I move towards the mess. I step towards the stink. Let me into the stench behind the stone. Let's finish, verses 41 to 44. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I, in 15 years, have probably officiated 150 to 200 funerals. And uh, all very sad, but some of them don't always go great. <laughs> there was one time in Lurgan, I, I, I'd done three funerals in 24 hours, and I forgot the deceased guy's name. And it was kind of a semi-paramilitary funeral, and I called him by his brother, who was very much alive, <laughs> drunk here, and wasn't very pleased at the time, um, it didn't go great. I, I did two funerals where the police had to be called to. Can I say they were both in Lurgan? Um, to break up families, just say, I'm not saying anything about there. I'm just saying that's where it happened. Um, I have a friend, Clara, who's a, a really good singer, and she would sing at a lot of weddings and, and funerals. And She was asked to sing at a funeral a number of years ago. She was telling me, and she was asked to sing that lovely song, Somewhere Over a Rainbow, you know, from The Wizard of Oz. And, they didn't have a band, so they were going to play the backing track, and it was going to be this beautiful moment at the end of the service. But the person doing the recording had, had the CD for, for The Wizard of Oz and hit the wrong track by accident and, and put on Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead 
True story. Absolutely true story. How to ruin a funeral, huh? How to ruin a funeral. True story. Jesus ruined every funeral he ever went to. You read the Gospels, every time Jesus walks into a funeral, he ruins it. They're all weeping, they're all mourning, they're all crying, and Jesus walks in and raises them from the dead. He even ruined his own funeral. They only had to borrow a tomb because he wasn't going to need it for any more than a few days. Jesus ruined every funeral he went to. And here in John 11, Jesus goes to the funeral of Lazarus, and he's, he's not going to let it go as they all planned. The stone has rolled away, he says a prayer, and then he says, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man comes out. You know, I've preached to some dead churches. And I've preached to some dead congregations. I've never preached to a cemetery. It's felt like it at times, but I haven't. Can you imagine your great-uncle Robert's funeral? You're just at that quiet moment at the end. And some guy walks in the back and goes, Bob, come out! You would think he was insane. You would think he was crazy. You would have him arrested unless his name is Jesus because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And when he walks into a place of death, death cannot stay because he is the resurrection and the life. And his name and his voice is always more powerful than death. And he shouts a grave-shaking word of life and the dead comes back to life. It's not over that Jesus says it's over. He's the one who turns off the dark. Have you ever been to a sports game and... Your team are losing, 3-1, five minutes to go and you decide to leave to avoid the traffic and you go out and you realise that it was the greatest comeback since Lazarus and uh, they went 4-3 and you know it's that moment of you think it's all over, it's not over yet. It's not over till the referee says it's over. It's not over until the one in charge says it's over. And I want to say to you, if you have things in your life right now that look like they're done, look like they're impossible, look like they're finished, look like God is done with you, look like he's disappointed you, unless God has told you it's over, don't believe it's over. But don't, unless God has specifically said that is dead, don't you believe it's dead? Because there's things that he, we call dead that he says, no, they're just sleeping. They're just sleeping. And when I speak to that thing, it may be dead for four days. It may be dead for 40 years. But when I speak to that thing, it is going to come back to life. And some of you have things in your heart, dreams in your heart, things that God has spoken to you in the past, words, prophetic words that God has spoken to you. And you've got them written in Bibles and they're collecting dust on the shelf. And God wants to say, I'm going to resurrect some of those things. I'm going to speak to some of those things because it's not over until I say it's over. I am the one who brings life to the dead. You know, the Bible says that all of us are dead because of sin. Ephesians 2, 1 says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The Bible says that sin causes death. Remember God said, don't eat of that because you'll die. And they ate and they stayed alive. Because immediately they'd spiritually died and eventually they would physically die. And the Bible says that because of sin we're physically dead. We're separated from the one who is the source of life, our God. But it also says in Ephesians this, that our God came to make us alive. Look at verses three, or 4 and 5. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. You see, you can, do, you can go to the new gym all you want there, and you can get Botox, and you can work out, and you can get boots number seven cream, and you can do all of that stuff, but the reality is one day you're going to die. I'm sorry to bring you down on a Sunday morning, but the statistics have never changed. Unless Jesus comes back, one out of every one people die. 100% mortality. And we've had a year where people have been so scared of dying that they've decided to stop living. 
People are so scared of dying from a disease that is a 0.05% mortality rate that we've decided to stop living. And I want to say to us as believers that we have no fear of death. We have no fear of death. Why? Because it's a comma, it's not a full stop. When you die and when I die, if you have put your faith in Christ, you see, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life? Because if you do, he lives in you. And even though you die, you will live because the one who believes in him will never die. Two years ago this week, my friend Graham died. He was my right-hand man for five years in Dublin. Same age as me, got cancer shortly after we left Dublin. Two years ago this week, he died. I want to tell you, Graham is not dead. (laughs) Graham is more alive than he has ever been. And yes, we grieve for his wife. We grieve for his little girls. That's okay to grieve. Jesus wept. Grief is okay, folks. It is okay to weep, okay? But we weep as those with hope. We weep as those who who have faith in the one who is the resurrection and the life. And we trust him. And we trust him with our future. We trust him with our eternity. And we trust him with our now because he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I want to say to you that if things haven't worked out as you planned, if things haven't worked out as you dreamed, don't give up. Because he is the one who has the final word. He is the resurrection and the life. Why did Jesus wait so long? Why did Jesus wait so long? Because he had something greater in store. You see, a healing's good. Even a resuscitation. He had done that a number of times before. For Jairus' daughter and for the the servant of of the centurion. But he had never done a four-day resurrection. It's the only time in the whole of the scriptures where Jesus raised somebody to dead like this. From the dead like this. If Jesus had met their expectations, he wouldn't have been able to exceed their expectations. And sometimes God doesn't show up because he doesn't want to just meet our expectations, he wants to exceed them. He has something greater in store. And it's not just about your comfort, it's about his glory. That is always the priority. His glory will be shown sometimes in our disappointment, but our disappointment will not last when Jesus shows I just want to read something. My friend actually put this on, on Instagram this week, and I, just, I told her I was going to steal it, but I thought it was just really good. She said, last year I waited until December 23rd to do my Christmas shopping. <laughs> I can go amen there. Having learned from my mistakes this year, I started in October. As I got these presents for my children that they wouldn't receive for a few months, I felt the Lord gently nudge me. Who are these presents for? My sons. Who do they belong to? I just squinted my eyes knowing where this was going. Why, are you giving the, why aren't you giving the presents to them now? Because it's not the right time. As I said the words to God, I sighed. I knew exactly what he was trying to tell me. How often in my life do I want the things God has for me at the wrong time? I beg and plead like a kid searching for their Christmas presents in October. Let's be reminded today that God's timing is perfect His ways are higher than ours, and he knows the best time to give us the things that we desire and ask him for. What are you waiting for in your life today? What are you waiting for? We're all waiting on something. Is there something that you know God has made a promise to you, or you know is his plan for you? And she said this, My sons have no evidence that their Christmas presents are bought, but they have evidence of my husband and I as good parents. We might not have evidence of what he's doing, 
or when he's going to move, but we have evidence of his character. He's a good God. He's a good Father. So it says, trust his timing. It may be sooner than you think. For our God is a God who turns off 